0: We return to the book of Genesis today. Our scripture reading is in Genesis 1 and 2. We're going to read the first 13 verses of Genesis 1, then we're going to jump to chapter 2. And what you should know about Genesis 1 and 2 is that they don't exactly follow chronologically in order. Genesis 2 did not exactly happen after Genesis 1, but it's better to view them as two accounts of the same event. But chapter 2, beginning at verse 4, focuses on certain aspects of what we read in chapter 1 about the creation of plants, the creation of man, and so forth. So we're going to read portion of chapter 2. The portion which particularly focuses on the creation of plants. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. Now this is our text. And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree, yielding fruit after its kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind, and God saw that it was good, and the evening and the morning were the third day. Now let's turn to chapter 2, begin reading at verse 4 through verse 9. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens and every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge. Of good and evil. We read that far today. We have been considering together God's creation of the heavens and the earth. How he created all things out of nothing in the very first moment and then he proceeded to shape and fashion the orderly and complex world in which we live in six days. We have seen that in that very first moment when God created the heavens and the earth, the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters on the earth What was the Spirit of God doing when he hovered or fluttered over the waters in the darkness before there was light, before there was life, before there were any creatures on the earth? Well, we just sang of that in the Psalter when we sang, Thy Spirit, O Lord, makes life to abound. The earth is renewed and fruitful the ground. In that very first moment, the Spirit of God was preparing the earth to bring forth living organisms. The Spirit of God is the one through whom God infuses life and renews life in the earth. Today, God does that through his providence as the Spirit renews the ground and causes life to continue to sprout. But in that very first instant, of the world, when the Spirit moved over the face of the waters, the Spirit was infusing into the waters and into the earth the materials of life before there was life. He was infusing into the waters and the earth, we might say in modern scientific terms, organic molecules, organic materials, things which are not yet alive, but which are the building blocks of life, those complex compounds and molecules which form the the building blocks of all living organisms on this earth. The Spirit was infusing into the earth the energies, the processes that would be necessary for the creation of living things. Then on that first day, God proceeded to create light, And he caused the light to shine on the earth before there was a sun, moon, or stars. On the second day, God shaped the land and the seas and the sky to create an ideal environment for life to flourish on this earth. God was preparing the way in his orderly and wise manner to cause life to grow on earth. Then on the third day of creation, God caused life to begin on earth. Having prepared those building blocks, energies, processes, molecules, and compounds, he caused life to emerge in the dry land for the very first time and to thrive in that paradise environment. One of the greatest mysteries that man faces is the origin of life on earth. This has been a riddle to the human race for centuries and millennia. Men of all different religions and philosophies have tried to answer the question, how did life begin on earth? Where did life come from? How did we get here? And how did all living things get here? There have been many different theories. One of them that lasted for many, many centuries was the theory of spontaneous generation that cold, lifeless, inert matter has the ability spontaneously to come alive. Even unbelieving scientists have come to realize the error of that theory in modern times. But in replacing that theory of spontaneous generation, they have come up with other theories which are no less unbelieving. And we know that in most of the schools and universities around the world, not only here in Canada, but in the United States and throughout the world, a theory is taught about the origin of life with which we cannot agree. A theory that is not from Scripture, a theory that comes from unbelieving philosophy and science, as we will see in the sermon. But what the Word of God says to us today is that God tells us the answer to this riddle in the scriptures. It's not a riddle for believers who read the Bible. It's not a mystery to us as it is to them. The mystery is solved. We know the answer to this question. How did life begin? God said, let the earth bring forth grass. That's how life began on earth. And for us to live our lives in joyful adoration and praise of God as our creator, we need to hear the proclamation of that truth. So I call your attention this afternoon to God's creation of plant life. Notice, first of all, the origin of life on earth, a very important topic. Secondly, each plant yielding seed after its kind, a very important truth revealed in the text. Finally, we're going to look at the purpose of God with Plants. In our text, we read these words And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. It happened, just as God said. And the earth brought forth grass and herb, yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the third day. That's the testimony of the scriptures to us in very simple terms. God is teaching us in our text that life began on this earth. As far as we know, there is no life anywhere else in the universe than on this earth. Because God teaches us here in our text, in the scripture, that the life began on earth. And he doesn't tell us that life began anywhere else. But he does tell us that it began here, on the third day. No one was there in the beginning. No one saw what happened on the third day, except for God himself who caused it to happen. And therefore, the only way we can know with certainty what happened is to listen to God and what he tells us. He tells us here in our text. Something that must have been absolutely amazing and incredible to see if we were there. What the text is saying to us is that all of a sudden, on the third day, after God shaped the dry land and separated it from the waters, suddenly... Little, tender, green plants sprouted and poked up through the soil everywhere on earth. And those tiny, tender, little plants that began to poke up all over the place started to grow, and they grew very rapidly, much more rapidly than they have at any other point in history. What the text is teaching us is that the creation of plant life was a miracle, a supernatural act of God, that is unlike the providential way that he ordinarily causes plants to grow. Just think of it. In one day, you could have seen, if you were there, all of the earth suddenly filled with lush green grass, beautiful waving fields of green grass, and fields of herbs, of small foliage, and lush shrubs and bushes whole beautiful forests of mighty trees reaching up their branches toward the sky and stretching them out over the earth, full of bright, shining green leaves and heavy laden with fruits and nuts and berries. All of a sudden, we don't know how long, in only a matter of a few or several hours, in the course of one day, God covered the earth with grass, herbs, and trees. Three categories of plants, according to our text. He covered the earth, first of all, with grass. And now grass here in the text doesn't only refer to the green grass that grows in our front or backyards, but it also refers to all kinds and varieties of grass that grow on the earth, including the fields of wheat and rye and barley and rice, which give us our daily bread. The second category is herbs. And that not only includes those fragrant little plants which we use to flavor our foods, but also refers to all small plants shrubs, bushes, vegetables. And then the third category are the trees. Not only those kind of trees that we think of as fruit trees, the apple tree and the mango tree, the palm tree with its coconuts and the olive tree and the fig tree, but also other trees like the cedars of Lebanon, the fig trees and olive trees that were found everywhere in Palestine in the days of Jesus Christ, the great maple trees and oak trees that are found, the pine trees all around us, the mighty forests that cover the earth and the rainforests. And it seems to me that God also created the Garden of Eden on that day. That's why we read from chapter 2. First of all, Moses points out that in the beginning there were no plants in the earth, verse 5. But then God planted a garden eastward in Eden, verse 8. And out of the ground God made every tree to grow that is pleasant to the sight. So there was a place in the earth called Eden, which means delight or pleasure, a place of delight. And in that place, in the eastern part of that land, God created a special garden. In a special way, he caused plants to grow up, shrubs and bushes to form some kind of exterior so that there was an enclosure full of the most pleasant and beautiful and special trees on earth. Pleasant to the sight good for food. And in the very middle of that garden, the tree of life also, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two real trees bearing real fruit that was pleasant to the sight that will become significant in the history of mankind, as we will see. God planted this special Garden of Eden as the place in the earth, this lush paradise, where he would dwell in intimate communion in covenant with those creatures which he planned to make at the end of the creation week who would be his crowning achievement. All of these plants, which suddenly sprung to life on the third day of creation, immediately began to soak in the rays of light that were shining from the hand of God and not yet from the sun, They immediately began to draw up water and nutrients from their roots, and they immediately began to bear delicious fruits of all kinds. And in those brief words, God reveals to us how life began on earth. Life did not begin on this earth by chance. But life began through the power of Almighty God. There are many today who believe that life began by chance on this earth, and that there is no God. But life did not begin by chance. God tells us He created life. He brought forth life in this world. Life cannot come into existence from non-life. Living things cannot come into existence by chance from cold, inert matter that simply isn't possible. Life can only come into existence from life. Life always comes from pre-existing life. The living creatures on this world came into existence first from God, the living God, and God himself never began. God is the living one. He is the source and fountain of all life. All life comes from him because he is life itself, the living God. He tells us in the text that he created life. Life did not begin on this earth through natural processes, which took millions of years until finally we see what we see in the world around us. But life began when God spoke. That's what we find in our text, as in the other texts. God said, Those are very significant words. God said. As we read in John chapter 1, that word of the Lord is Jesus Christ Himself. Before he became incarnate, when God spoke and said, let the earth bring forth grass, he was speaking forth Jesus Christ into the world. And it was by means of his word, Jesus Christ, that God caused life to originate on this earth. And he did so not over millions of years, but as we read in the text, the evening and the morning were the third day. In one day, indeed, less than one day, God brought forth living organisms through Christ in the earth. God brought forth all living things, not out of nothing, but out of the earth. Remember that God brought forth everything out of nothing in the very first moment, but then he proceeded to create out of those materials that he had already made, And that's what we read very literally in the text. God said, let the earth bring forth grass. God did not say, let there be grass. He said, let the earth bring forth grass, herbs, trees. And the earth brought forth grass, herbs, and trees. Remember what I said in the introduction. In the very first moment, the Spirit was hovering over the waters of the earth, infusing into the earth the powers, energies, processes, organic molecules and compounds, everything that was needed so that on the third day, all of those energies and molecules were ready for God to fuse them together. So that God fused together proteins, enzymes, amino acids, to use all of our modern scientific terms, to form that first one-celled organism. And joining together cell after cell after cell, very rapidly he caused organisms to emerge. Plants were the first from the earth. And in a very, very quick time, the earth was full of grass, herbs, and trees. That's a miracle. Today, it takes a very long time for plants and other organisms to grow but it took less than one day when God created them originally. Do you believe that testimony of Scripture? Do you believe what God tells us in the text happened when none of us was there to see it all those years ago? As believers, we receive the testimony of Scripture with humility, and we reject All theories which do not conform to the scriptures. We reject theories. We don't reject what we can observe through real science in the earth. We receive that. We learn from that. God wants us to learn from that. But we reject all theories about the origin of life on this earth that do not conform with. The Holy Scriptures. In other words, we reject all theories that come from those who do not believe in the God of the Scriptures. We reject the theories of atheists, of pantheists, of deists, and of those who worship other gods. We reject the theories of those who say that Mother Nature, whoever that is, brought life into existence. We have to understand that when it comes to the origin of life, as I said earlier, one of the greatest mysteries of the world, when it comes to this great mystery, no one knows how that happened. God must tell us. But modern man thinks that he can ascertain how that happened through science. He is wrong. When we talk about the origin of life, we're talking about a matter of faith, not a matter of science. Science is a good thing. Science is the observation of the world as it presently exists. But we weren't there to observe the origin of life, as they also recognize. We're talking here about a matter of faith, not a matter of science. It's a matter of faith for them, and it's a matter of faith for us. The question is not whether it's a matter of faith, But which is the correct faith? We begin to try to answer the question by believing that the Bible is the word of God. That the God of the Bible is the only true and living God. And that the Bible is the authority for our faith and life. The Bible is the only way we can know the mystery of the origin of life. But many people today do not begin where we do. Many people today begin by believing that we live in a material world. There is nothing but what you can see. There is no God. All there is is matter. And all there is is the laws of nature governing and directing matter over millions of years. That's a belief. That's not from science, but that's a belief if you start from that belief that the only thing that exists is what we can see and the only thing we can know is what we can see, then you're going to come to very different conclusions than we who believe the Bible is God's word. The modern scientific movement tells us that life began on this earth about 3.8 billion years ago. They believe that the earth began about 4.5 billion years ago and the universe even much older than that. Now listen, they believe that life began on earth by chance between 4.5 and 3.8 billion years ago. That's when it began, somewhere in that range of less than a billion years. They believe although they do not know the mechanism by which it happened, they believe that by chance all of the right molecules came together in just the right way, at just the right time, under just the right conditions, so that suddenly a living cell, a one-cell organism, came into existence from non-living matter. Now, there's lots of different theories, although they do not know how that happened. You can ask the most renowned scientist, and he will say, I believe that happened. I don't know how that happened. He won't want to say he believes it. But in the end, he will have to say, I believe that. Yes, I believe it, because it's a theory, and I can't prove it. But I don't want to believe that God did it. I want to believe that this world is only material, and therefore, I conclude That's how it must have happened. It must have happened by chance. But if you talk to a mathematician or a statistician about what is the probability that all of those molecules will come together at just the right time in just the right way to form just the right components of a cell in that amount of time, less than one billion years... He will tell you it is such a slim probability, it is mathematically impossible. It's mathematically impossible. But if you don't believe that, then you are considered a backward, unscientific, bigoted Christian who is not up with the times. We are the unscientific ones, we are the bigoted ones. We are the ones who insist on our view over against the whole mass of science. But all of the research of all of the scientists over the last century has come up with this the most impossible, improbable thing happened. I call that faith. But more specifically, I call that unbelief. It doesn't even make sense but that's what they believe. And they spend their whole lives trying to solve that mystery, trying to get to the bottom of it. And you will find endless discussions and endless encyclopedia references and books and magazines written trying to form various theories of how that happened, but they can't figure it out because it's not possible for life to come out of non-life. It's a theory. We believe the simple testimony of the scripture. We believe it. Because God has told us that's how it happened. There are other reasons in the text why we cannot accept the theory that they believe. God said that the earth should bring forth grass and the herb yielding seed and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind whose seed is in itself. God created living organisms in the beginning to reproduce after their kind. That's why we cannot accept evolutionism. You know, the absurdity of the modern theory is not only that it's not possible for that to happen, for life to come out of non-life, but what about that very first celled organism that supposedly emerged four billion years ago? What are the chances that that one cell continued to live in the midst of a world that we are told was full of outrageous forces of nature? That one tiny microscopic cell in the earth or in the sea or wherever it came from continued to exist and wasn't destroyed immediately by the wind and the heat and all the rest. Not only that, but that that single-celled organism somehow developed all by itself, by chance, without God, the ability to reproduce itself. And not only the ability to reproduce itself, but the will to reproduce itself. Why would, by chance, out of non life, life suddenly come into existence and begin to reproduce itself? Why? Why do we look around us and see in the world a world bursting with living things which are eager and zealous and have a zest for life and a zest for reproducing themselves? Why is that what we see? Why do we see grass producing more grass and herbs producing more herbs and trees producing more trees? Why do we see that? And why do we see them reproducing after their own kind consistently over hundreds and thousands of years of human history? That's what we see. Why is that? That all happened by chance? That didn't happen by chance. The reason we see that and the reason that happens is because God created that way in the beginning. He created these first living organisms and he gave to them the power to reproduce. Why do they reproduce? God gave them that power. Why do they desire to keep living? And you say they're plants. They don't desire to keep living. Then why do they keep reproducing? They want to keep living. Plants don't want to die. Just this morning at our family breakfast, We have on our table a vase of tulips sitting there in the water. And I said to the kids, why are the tulips still living? They've been cut off from their roots, but they're sitting there in the vase in the water, and the tulips are still pulling up water from the vase. Why is the tulip doing that? Because the tulips want to keep living. They don't want to die. Why do the tulips want to keep living? Because God created them with an instinct to live, to flourish, and to reproduce. That's what we are learning in our text. God gave them that ability in the form of seeds. God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit whose seed is in itself. On the, very, on the third day of creation, these herbs and trees were already bearing fruits. And in those fruits, there were seeds. And they would drop those fruits, and those seeds would then grow in the ground, and more trees come up. A seed is a very important creation of God. We know that from the rest of Scripture. God designed seeds. The seed is the principle of the whole plant. By the way, what came first, the seeds or the plants? The plants are the seeds. The text teaches us that the plants came first. The seeds came afterward. And those seeds that came from those first plants are the principle of the whole parent plant, that is going to become a child plant. The whole plant is in that seed, whether it's an acorn or a walnut or apple seeds or any other seeds. God designed the seed to be a figure of spiritual things, just as he designed all things to be figures of spiritual things. The seed that God created in the beginning, which is the principle of the whole plant, Reproducing itself, God created to be a picture of the seed of life in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came into this world and died on the cross to pay for our sins. He rose from the dead and poured out his Spirit upon us. And the Spirit of Christ plants in our hearts the seed of everlasting life. That's a seed, the Bible says an incorruptible seed. That seed that Christ plants in our hearts is the principle of everlasting life. The whole of everlasting life, the plant of everlasting life is there in that seed in our hearts. He gives us that at regeneration. When we are born again, we receive that seed of everlasting life. Because Christ is the firstfruits through his resurrection. And he has received everlasting life and he gives it to us in the form of seeds in this life to grow and to flourish into everlasting life in the world to come. So the seed is a very significant creation of God. Those first plants that God made cast forth their seeds before there was a man to till the ground. And those first seeds are the ancestors of all the other plants on the earth today. All of the plants on earth today are descendants of those first plants, just as we are all descendants of Adam and Eve. We just had prayer day recently, and we saw from Psalm 126 that in the seed time, the farmer goes out from his house and he scatters the seeds in the field. Those seeds that the farmer today scatters in the field are the descendants of those first seeds. God continues by his providence to cause those seeds to sprout and to grow into plants today. Finally, we notice why we cannot accept the theory of evolutionism regarding the origin and development of life on earth in that phrase in the text, yielding fruit after his kind. Now if we receive the scriptures as literally true and literally God's word, as we must, this passage of scripture is not a poem. This is giving to us the literal history of what God did. And if we accept it that way, then we have to understand that when God says, they are yielding fruit after their kind, that all by itself denies evolutionism. Evolutionism teaches that that first one-celled organism, which supposedly originated by chance, against all odds, somehow developed the power and the will to reproduce itself. But not only that... Evolutionism teaches now that over millions and billions of years, those original cells evolved from one kind into another kind and into another kind. Through natural selection and gene mutation. Natural selection was the so-called discovery of Charles Darwin a little over a century ago. And then another scientist discovered... Gene mutation, both of which are things that do actually happen. And we do see that the various kinds of plants that exist in the world today, within those kinds, there is much change, much development. You have how many different varieties of tomatoes? How many different varieties of bananas? And potatoes? And roses? And tulips? Look at any kind that you will, and you will find that within that kind there is much variation. That's because through the ages of history, these plants have changed. They have developed. They have caused different varieties. But there is no evolution from one kind into another kind. Because God created plants in the beginning to yield seed after their kind. Now what is a kind? A kind is not the same as a species. Charles Darwin entitled his book The Origin of Species. A species is the the most distinct form of a living organism. A kind is not a species. But if you think about it and compare it to what the scientists tell us are the various divisions, there's the kingdoms, division, class, order, family, genus, species, right? Right? We have the plant kingdom and the animal kingdom. And then in the plant kingdom, you can further divide down into the divisions and the classes and the orders and families, all these distinctions. A kind is probably a family or a genus, but not a species. Within one family, let's say tulips or roses or apples, they don't evolve into other kinds. Birds did not evolve from fish, as we will see in our next sermon. One kind of plant did not evolve from another kind of plant. All of the kinds of plants were there at the beginning. And there's much variation within the kind, but there's no evolution from one kind to another. Corn plants always produce corn. Beans always produce beans. Tomatoes always produce tomatoes. Tomatoes do not evolve into potatoes. They always produce the same kind. Now, what was God's purpose in creating all these plants? Whatever his purpose was, he certainly achieved it. Because once again, we read in verse 12, and God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. Everything was perfect. All these different kinds of plants that now filled the earth on that third day, they were all perfect. They were all ready to do what God wanted them to do. One of the purposes of God surely was that these plants would be a reflection of his own beauty. God saw them that they were good. That means, among other things, that God beheld all of the plants on the earth and he admired his handiwork for its stunning beauty. How much beauty comes from the world of plants, flowers, trees, grass, herbs. Just think of the dazzling variety of patterns, shapes and sizes of all the different flowers, all the different fruits and vegetables. Think of the amazing, attractive shades of green leaves, the different colors and hues. How much time in our lives do we spend admiring the glorious creation? God did that after he finished it. And God wants us to do that too. He certainly doesn't want us to look at the creation and come to the conclusion that there is no God. That all of this came about on its own. What blasphemy! What hatred of our Creator. God made it. He made it as a reflection of His own glorious beauty. The lilies and rose bushes, the mighty oaks and cedars of Lebanon. And God wants us also to admire His handiwork, to praise Him for His stunning artistry. But in the second place, God had a more practical purpose in creating plants, and He tells us that later in the chapter. In verse 29, God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree, in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat, or food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat, for food. And it was so, God created plants to be food for us and for the beasts of the field, the cattle, the birds. Now, God could have preserved man and beast without food. He's almighty. That's what we confess. If he is the almighty God, why did he create food? Why did he decide to preserve us through food? He did that because he wanted us to feel every single day when we feel those hunger grumblings how much we need him and how much we depend upon him for our very life. God does not eat, he doesn't need to drink. God himself is the source of life, he has life in himself, Jesus said in John 5. God has life in himself. He is the fountain of life. He is eternal life in the absolute sense. He doesn't need to eat and drink. He alone is the independent God. He has no need of any other creature. He doesn't depend upon any other being. But we do. We depend upon him. We need him. We cannot live without his preserving hand. That's one of the reasons he created food. And he determined that we would continue to preserve our lives by eating and drinking the food that he gives us. That's why he created plants on the third day. Every single day we come to realize that, don't we? When we feel hungry, We don't just eat and be satisfied, but we realize by that hunger, I'm a dependent creature. I'm so weak. I cannot go on without eating. And I should lift our hearts up to the Lord and to realize that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. God preserves our life, and he gives us food and drink as a means to that end. But in the third place, God must have also created the plants as food to be an experience of pleasure for us. God could have created food that did not taste like anything at all, food that had no color, that had no beauty, food that was all the same, but he didn't. He created a vast variety of trees and herbs and grass with an amazing diversity of color and taste and aroma. Just imagine all the fruits and nuts and seeds, the leaves and grains and vegetables and fruits and roots and herbs and spices. God created all of that on the third day. Why did he create all that variety? He wanted to give us the pleasure of eating and drinking. Psalm 104. He causeth the grass to grow for the cattle and herb for the service of man, that he may bring forth food out of the earth and wine that maketh glad the heart of man and oil to make his face to shine and bread which strengtheneth man's heart. The doctrine of creation supports what the rest of the scripture teaches that every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the Apostle Paul wrote again and again. Whether or not you eat the meat offered to idols for some for the weak brother he cannot eat that meat. A strong brother is able to eat that meat. He recognizes that an idol is nothing, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, that all these creatures are good and nothing to be refused. The apostles also make clear that we are to eat and drink in moderation. God does not give us the pleasure of eating and drinking as an end in itself. God is very clear that we are to worship and love him with all our hearts and all our souls and all our minds. Yes, he gives us the pleasure of eating and drinking, but to be done not in excess but in moderation so that we always remember who our God is. Not the belly, but the creator and giver of every good gift. But in the fourth place, and most importantly, The purpose that God had in creating plants, no doubt, was a spiritual purpose. We read through the scriptures and we find that the whole world of plants is this glorious set of figures and symbols that point to higher spiritual realities. How many figures of speech are there in the scriptures? Psalm 103 As for man, his days are as grass. As the flower of the field, so he flourisheth, for the wind passeth over it, and it is gone. Song of Solomon 2. I am the rose of Sharon, and the lily of the valleys. As the lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. Isaiah 53. When Christ comes, he will be as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. The house of Jesse, the house of David, will be cut down and only a stump will be left. But out of that stump will sprout a tender living plant, the branch, the Messiah will come. He will be humble and lowly. He will give himself to suffering and death on the cross. But then he will arise as a mighty cedar. He will arise from the dead. He will ascend up into heaven. He will become more beautiful than all the lilies of the valley and all the roses of Sharon, mightier than the towering cedars of Lebanon, and more fruitful than all the trees of the earth combined. Christ, the plants point to Christ. Christ is the true vine. He is the fruitful vine. He is the one in whom we find all the source of our life. He is the true and living bread, whom when a man eats, he receives nourishment unto eternal life. He is the true wine. When a man drinks, he finds eternal gladness in his heart. Christ So as we go forth this week, we have another, a renewed appreciation of the wonderful creatures that God has made, the grass, the herbs, and the trees, and as we observe them and their beauty, as we remember how dependent we are on God for our food, may we also be directed to our Lord Jesus.